I'll invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, page 573 in the Blue Bible if you have one. 573, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. This is part of the amazing book of the book of Isaiah. Many different prophecies within here concerning our Lord Jesus Christ that are kind of strung together through several chapters and on into the later chapters as well as we look at the suffering servant of chapter 53 and elsewhere. But uh, today we'll just want to focus on a few thoughts on this Christmas day, on this Lord's day. And uh, I do want to end with one particular emphasis that has been an encouragement to me over the course of the holiday season as I've been reading the different narratives concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hinted at uh, something last night at our Christmas Eve service, if you are with us, and I'm going to pick up on that uh, today as well. So let's read now from Isaiah 9 beginning at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. O Lord, as we look briefly at this amazing prophecy, we pray and ask that you'd give us insight, that you'd give us eyes to see and behold what is here, and that we would not go away unchanged, but that you would change us by the power of your Spirit as you speak into our lives, into our minds and hearts by your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis was one day with a fellow professor and they could hear some carolers singing Christmas carols outside their window. And so this one unbelieving professor said to C.S. Lewis, aren't you glad that we know better than they know? And they were speaking and singing of the virgin birth. And this professor, this unbelieving professor says, aren't you aren't you glad that we know better than they know? And C.S. Lewis said, pardon me? And the professor said, aren't you glad that we know that virgins can't give birth? And C.S. Lewis replied and simply said, do you not know that they knew that, that virgins can't give birth? And his point is simply this, that this unbelieving professor completely missed the point concerning the virgin birth. It was indeed a miracle. God did the impossible. Our God is the God of the impossible, and that's what he did in the miracle of the virgin birth. 
And Hervin Bovink says that there is one mediator between God and humanity. The true God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the Gospel. Christ, born of a woman, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The God-man in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has been calculated that with reference to Christ, there are more than 330 prophecies that we see in our Old Testament. Most of which have been fulfilled. Some are yet to be fulfilled. But all of these prophecies pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in Isaiah chapter 9 that the nation of Israel is in great turmoil and trouble. And we see the first word there in our text in chapter 9, but. And when we see that, we need to go previous to see what is linking this chapter with the previous chapter. And if you just cast your eyes back to that one previous verse, although there's much more there, it says that they will look to the earth. So these people are looking to the things of the earth. They've been looking at necromancers. They've been looking at, at different uh, magicians and different people with different ideas concerning the Lord. They've been inquiring, back in verse 19, of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and who mutter. And so they're looking at everywhere else but to the Lord. And it says there in verse 22, chapter 8, But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And there's a great lesson there. When we look to other places other than the Lord for, for wisdom and counsel and guidance, we are going to be in gloom. We are going to be in darkness. And that is what we see at the beginning here of chapter 9 of Isaiah, that the nation is in gloom and in darkness, but into that the Lord makes something glorious. The Lord does something glorious. The Lord gives the nation hope in the midst of, of darkness and in our suffering we need hope to be hopeless is to be in a really really bad place and maybe you feel hopeless this morning and i trust that the lord will have a a a word for you that will bring glory that will bring light into your life and the, that is what the messiah brings he brings us light in darkness as we look at verse 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, to them has light shone. So we see this essence within the prophecy here that Isaiah is speaking as if these things have already occurred, already happened. And such is his faith and trust in the word of the Lord. And what the Lord says, he will perform. And so sure is he that he puts it in a present tense. The people walked and now they have seen a great light. Is that the way that we view the promises of God? Are we so sure of what the Lord says that we pin all of our hopes upon it? All of the words that He spoke in times past and fulfilled in Christ and have spoken about our future? Are we sure that the Lord is going to do those things? Do we have that kind of faith and trust in what the Lord has promised to us? If you are a note taker, then I would invite you to jot down Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. It has similar themes to the lights and darkness. And then also Isaiah 49, 6 says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Light where there was once darkness. This is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. As his Word and gospel are proclaimed to the end of the earth. Christ Jesus fulfills this. Those who 
walked and dwelt in a land of deep darkness are all of those who don't know the Messiah and need to know the Messiah, need to know the light. The Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world, as he proclaimed. A light to those who are in darkness, who are in discouragement, who are in desolation, who are in gloom. What does light do? Well, light shines in darkness. A people in darkness have seen a great light. Light dispels the darkness. The gloomy is made glorious. Light shows the way in darkness. And that's what the Lord Jesus does for us. He shows us the way in darkness. Jesus spoke to them saying in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He is the light of the world. And so we see that the Messiah prophesied is light in darkness. And secondly, we see joy from despair. We see that in verse 3. Joy from despair. Israel was a nation in despair. And out of that, the Lord promises joy. The prophecy states that the coming Messiah will bring joy with him. The joy that those who follow the Messiah will feel are as people who rejoice at harvest time and as men who rejoice when dividing plunder after a battle. You enjoy a harvest time. I don't know if any of you might be farmers or former farmers. You plant something, you take care of something, you water it, you do all of those things, and then you reap a harvest. This is a little bit different in that Christ has done all of the work. Christ does all of the work. We enjoy all of the blessings. We reap the harvest from what Christ has planted within us and promises for us in eternity. We gain victory because of what Christ has done for us. We are victors in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.57 But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. What has Christ conquered? He's conquered death. He's conquered sin. Many people live in fear of death. We don't need to. We don't need to fear death. We can look at death as, as a gateway, an entranceway into the presence of the Lord forever and ever. There, there's light in darkness. There's joy in despair. And also we see there's liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 4 and verse 5. The nation of Israel often found herself in bondage to the nations around it. And God used the other nations to chastise Israel quite often. And we see that here. In, in the past, the freedom had been given by God as the Israelites depended upon Him, repented of their sins. And the story that Isaiah draws to mind here in verse 4 is that of Midian in Judges uh, 6 and 7. There's a vast army defeated by Gideon and 300 men. Gideon wanted to take a lot more. The Lord said, no, just take 300. And did they conquer because they had more artillery? Did they, they didn't conquer because of numbers. They didn't be, conquer because of all of the artillery or equipment they had. The Lord won the battle. Again, God did all the work. God does all the work. And Christ gains for us liberty when we put our faith and trust in Him. Freedom from the slavery of sin. Freedom from the slavery of religion. Of good works. Of trying to be good enough. We can't be good enough. Christ Jesus was good enough. We put our faith and trust 
in Him and when we believe and trust in Him, instead of worry and fear and trying to control things, we can rest in freedom and liberty and all that Christ has provided for us. So there is light and darkness, there's joy and despair, there's freedom from bondage, and this prophetic text goes on to explain in detail more about the Messiah who has come for us in verse 6 and 7. And I want to notice this repetition that we see here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, to us. Who is the to us? The to us is you and I who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then this text goes on in a wonderful way to tell us of the wonderful counselor who has come for us and these different names of Christ, this child who is born for us. And we see all the way back in the garden, a promised child who is going to come along. And we see that unfolded throughout all the covenants of the Old Testament into the new covenant, that the child was promised to come. And now we look back on the child who has come, the promise fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is called Wonderful Counselor. A counselor is someone who helped kings decide what to do in ancient times. The kings would consult these counselors. And Christ is proclaimed as a wonderful counselor. The coming king would need no counselor, but we can go to him for counsel. The coming king would, be, would know just what to say and just what to do all of the time. He is wisdom personified. And he's also called mighty God. So he is Lord, strong and mighty in battle. And we see him conquering in verses 3 to 5. The prophecy here points clearly to the deity of Christ and the strength and the power that he has as God. And then he is called everlasting father. And that might be confusing to us, but don't think about the Trinity in this context. It's not talking about that at all. And it could probably be better translated father of eternity. Father of eternity. This is the emphasis on the eternality of the son. From everlasting to everlasting, Christ is. And like a father, he's compassionate in his care and discipline for his children. And then we see Prince of Peace. Now Christmas time can be a time of great upheaval for families. There's not peace in many families. But yet Christ has promised that he would be the Prince of Peace. And if we are looking for peace anywhere else than the Prince of Peace, then we're looking in the wrong place. The Messiah's rule will bring an end to war. We see that in verse 5. He's a king that will bring peace with righteousness and justice. The Messiah has come. And the Messiah will come. And he's going to come right on time when he does come. I don't know what that time is. I'm not going to bring out charts and try to graph it and show you exactly when Christ is going to return a second time. But I do know, based on the authority of God's Word, that He is going to come. He will come. And He's going to come right on time. And this theme of time is something that I've found very interesting in looking at the different narratives concerning the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ over these last several weeks as I've looked into that. The prophets of old, like Isaiah, were right about his first advent and his first coming. Cast your eyes just a few chapters back in verse, chapter 7 and verse 14, if you could look there for just one moment, and see this wonderful fulfillment that we have 
shown for us in the New Testament. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. There's going to be a point in time. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before the fulfillment, this is called out here in Isaiah 7.14, and we see that fulfilled in Matthew 1.22 and 23. 700 years later. Think about that. 700 years later, we see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the Word of God will be right about the second advent of Christ as well. When that is, we don't know. But in, obviously, inherent within prophecies is this element of time. Time. There's going to be a time. And if you'll turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 2, where we were last night, Luke chapter 2, when we were looking at this uh, and many other passages last night, many fulfillments of prophecy, and we look in chapter 2 of the book of Luke and we see a lot of amazing things in here. And even back in chapter 1, where it's talking about the angel Gabriel in verse 20 of chapter 1, telling Zechariah that he and Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist. And the angel says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. That is because Zechariah wasn't believing and he's doubting what the angel was saying concerning uh, what was going to take place with John the Baptist. Until the day that these things take place. So again, the time. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, the angel says. There's going to be a time. This is going to be fulfilled. It's going to happen. It will happen on God's time. And Luke 1.57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. That is John the Baptist. A time. Christ was born at the appointed time, and so began a march through time like no other march through time. The Lord Jesus Christ was always on time for everything. And he had many appointments that he was on time for. In Jesus' life, we see that he was always on time concerning the start of his ministry. That was at an appointed time. He was baptized, he began his ministry. Concerning people's knowledge of him as the Messiah publicly. That was at a particular point in time. And if it wasn't the time, things didn't happen. And when it was the time, things did happen. And so just a a few verses here for us to consider. John 7, verse 6, My time has not yet come. And verse 8 of John 7, My time has not yet fully come. And I'm going to be going back to Luke 2, so just be patient there for one second. But Jesus is saying here, in chapter 7 of John, that the time for him to be publicly known as the Messiah is not yet. His time hadn't come. John 7.30, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So again, the time then for his arrest and subsequent execution had not yet come. John 8.20, no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Again, the time. It had not yet come. John 13.1, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world. So now he's getting ready to die. He knows the appointed time is coming. John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was suffering, he prayed, Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed. 
And what hour is he speaking of? Obviously, he's referring to his arrest and then his death. His whole life was moving, marching toward the cross. He had an appointment to keep on the cross. And it was all at the right time. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, at God's time. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul said, In the fullness of time, or at exactly the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. It was the right time. The right time for Christ to die to pay the penalty for our sins. The one who dwells outside of time stepped into time and the time came for Him to die. Now, what does that have to do with the book of Luke? Okay, if we go back to Luke 2 and verse 6, we see there stated that it was time for Mary to give birth. The time for Jesus to be born and then begin this march. And then we look at the latter part of chapter 2 of the book of Luke, which we didn't look at last night, but the amazing um, prophecy that we see here from Simeon. Simeon, another man who's introduced into the text at the end, or the middle part, really, of the book of Luke in in chapter 2 here, where we see in 25 to 35. Okay, He's brought to the temple for the time of purification. And this man, Simeon, there is now confronted with the consolation of Israel. The Messiah has come, and he sees him. We see that in verse 25 unfolded for us. And he says, My eyes have now seen your salvation. The salvation of the people has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 32, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Again, a light has come in the midst of darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ speaking light into the darkness. But Simeon here, into the wonderful Christmas narrative, drops a couple of bombs near the end of what he has to say. And it's quite staggering to see this interjected into these narratives. And I just want to meditate upon this for uh, for a couple of minutes here. And the first is in verse 35. I wanted to look at that one. In his blessing to Mary, he tells her how hurt she is going to be when she watches her son die. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Remember, Christ on the cross was thrust through with the sword. And Mary is standing there watching. The pain of watching her own child die. How grievous that would be. And it's prophesied here by Simeon. And then, just stepping back to verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This child is appointed. Appoint in time. This child is appointed for the rise and fall of people in Israel. Christ is coming again, it's sure. And He came once, as Isaiah said, to us. And He's going to come again for us. And when He comes again for us, we are going to have an appointment to keep with Him. And the question we have to ask, is it going to be for our rising or our falling? 
And that's a sobering way to end the Christmas narrative that we read here in the text. And it's a sobering question for us to consider this morning. And if perhaps you only come to, to, uh, to church once a year and it's Christmas time, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is no more important question for you to consider than that Christ is coming again, and will it be for your rising or for your falling? In Israel and outside of Israel, there will be a sharp division between those who embraced Christ and those who do not. And I trust that all of you here today have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson says, a person's relation or attitude towards Jesus will be absolutely decisive of his eternal destiny. What are your thoughts concerning Christ? On that appointed day, on that appointed hour when you stand before him and keep that appointment, There's going to be no warrants out for your arrest. There's going to be no failure to appear. Everyone will appear right on time. On God's time. His divine timetable. Will it be for our rising or for our falling? God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. For those who refuse to submit to the King, it will be a final and eternally fatal fall. For those who are humble enough to admit their need for a Savior, we will be received into His presence. It will be a time for our rising. Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will rise up and He will not condemn us. He will acknowledge us. He will acquit us of every sin we've ever committed against Him and receive us eternally into His presence. We have a divine appointment. Will it be for our rising or for our falling? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, this is a very sobering text and very sobering consideration that Christ, the light of the world, has come into this world and how dare we reject Him. And so, Lord, I pray and I ask and I plead for all of those souls here that do not know you. And I ask, O Lord, that this would indeed be a a day of great joy and of great blessing upon them. And that you would save and that you would be exalted amongst every heart here. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.